part of our theme of creation cares realizes as david said that our god is a big god who is bigger than all our problems let's begin our worship with a psalm let's recite together psalm 98 could you please stand and let's say this together let the sea and everything in it shout let the world and everyone on it sing let the rivers clap their hands let the mountains sing together for joy let them sing before the lord because he is coming to judge the world he will judge the world fairly he will judge the nations with fairness let's sing together our first song of praise the song restore O lord Let's pray as we turn to reflect on God's word. Lord God, thank you that your word is as living as the rest of your creation. Thank you that you speak to us by what we see all around us and by this word written in this book so long ago that is so deep and so rich. Lord, we pray that you would send your spirit now into our hearts that we might understand what you are speaking to us at this moment, that we might understand and live for your glory. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's recap where we've been so far. Three Sundays ago, we were looking at that first chapter of Genesis, and we saw there a picture of God as a master artist craftsman, a picture of God who loves his creation and sees it as good. We went on two weeks ago, and we saw God finishing his creation, finishing his creation with the addition of human beings who were made in his image. And we observe that image-bearing entails not kingship on our part, but servanthood. Image-bearing is all about serving the king of creation who is God almighty and serving the rest of creation on his behalf we concluded from the second half of Genesis chapter 1 that our unique vocation of ruling and subduing the rest of creation was vitally servient to that idea of being made in God's image. That, that subduing and ruling were about representing God, this God who loves creation from the core of who he is as the God who is love. And our calling in image-bearing and subduing and ruling is to listen to him and to follow his ways and loving as he does. Well, this week we turn to what seems to be a totally different account of creation. It's the one that is found in Genesis chapter 2. It starts in verse 4 with an introduction similar to Genesis chapter 1. 
It's as if we are starting all over again. But this account in chapter 2 is very different from the account that we find of creation in chapter 1. There, in the first account, God takes seven days to create. But here it seems to happen all in one day. There it begins with God creating light and darkness and carving out land from chaotic waters. But here there is land and sky already, and light and darkness are never mentioned in chapter 2 in this second account of creation. What's going on here? Why are there two accounts of creation in our Bible? Well, some scholars say that it's just random that there were these two accounts in the ancient tradition of Israel, and somewhere down the line they got lumped together here at the beginning of Genesis. I think, however, that the Bible is much, much more clever than that. Indeed, it is a book that was inspired by God. And these two accounts are giving us two different aspects of the answer to our questions concerning the who and the why of creation. These two accounts do not contradict each other, but they show us different facets of the hymns that we find here at the beginning of all things. Remember that Genesis is not a science book. It does not answer the questions how and when of the origins of the earth. But Genesis's intention is more to help us define those answers to the, the questions of who and why of the origins of life. What specifically does this second account of creation add to our understanding? How does it help us answer those questions of who and why? What does this second account of creation tell us about God? Well, in the second account of creation that goes right through to the end of chapter 3, God is more down here than he is up there. In fancy language, God is more imminent than he is transcendent. Here in this second account of creation, God is more involved. God walks in the garden. God forms man with his hands from the dust of the earth. And here in the second account of creation, God is responsive. There's no one to work the ground, it says there in verse 5. So in response to this need, God makes a human being. There's no suitable partner for Adam later on in chapter 3. No suitable partner amongst all the creatures. And so God responds to that need by making the woman, by making Eve. In the first account of creation there in chapter 1, the picture that I get of God, as I said before, is a master artist craftsman. A master artist who has a plan and who works to that plan. But the picture I get of God in this second account of creation 
is a God who is the owner of a beautiful garden. The owner of a beautiful garden where he loves to be. In the second account of creation, God walks around. He smells the flowers. He observes the trees, the birds, and the animals. And God has conversations with the God whom is there in the garden to tend and look after it. Although God speaks in the first account of creation to give humans their vocation there in verse 28 of chapter 1, here and later in chapter 3, God holds whole conversations with the humans that he has made. So the picture we're getting here in the second account of creation is a God who is well and truly in this world that he creates. And he's involved with all he has made. And he's involved especially with the humans that he has breathed his breath into. And what of humans? What about the who there? What is their calling in this second account of creation? In the first account, we had two words for the vocation of humanity. They were to subdue and to rule. And here we have two other words. You'll find them there in verse 15. They are to work and to take care of. To work and to work and to keep our gardening words. And that is our God-given vocation as human beings. To garden along with ruling and subduing after God's image, we are to garden. But the word, those words, work and keep, are also found elsewhere significantly in the Old Testament. In Numbers, where God gives instructions to the priests for their duties in the... These are the same exact words that are used to work and to keep. So creation is like a garden, but it's also a temple. Humans are called to garden, but gardening is a sacred priestly occupation. It seems indeed all good human work, according to Genesis 1 and 2, is rightly seen as sacred. Gardening is priestly in that it serves God, serving his purposes in his garden, but it also serves the other creatures in the garden. A, a priest stands as a servant between God and others. In that sense, what is done in the garden is not only work, but it is also worship. All human work is sacred because when it is done right, it reflects the work of God. Just as Sam was saying, like God, when we work, we create order out of 
chaos, help things to flourish as they were meant to flourish. And that's true of a hairdresser as much as it is for a school teacher or a waiter in a restaurant creating order out of chaos. I wonder what our work, apart from gardening, your work and my work, whether it be paid employment, a, a voluntary position, or, or just something that we see as everyday life, like caring or cooking and cleaning. I wonder what our work would look like if we saw it as sacred. If we saw our work as the work of priests, serving God and serving God's creation on his behalf. In our minds, part of what makes a certain job sacred is where it's done. Certainly, the priests worked in the temple, and their work was sacred because it was there that they worked. But here in Genesis 2, the whole of the Garden of Delights, that is what Eden means, the whole of the created cosmos is a sacred space. The garden was where God dwelt. So any work done there was sacred because it was before God. And any work anywhere was and is sacred. Now this is a story. We talked about that our first week. This is a story and a story is meant to be accepted as, as poetry with images and, and allusions to other things. And to understand a story well, we need to put ourselves into it. So let's think of this picture of God that we find here in chapter 2 and 3 of Genesis. God's walking in the cool of the evening, it says in in chapter 3, verse 8. He's walking back and forth. And that too is a phrase that's been used elsewhere in the Hebrew Bible that speaks of God's presence in his tabernacle or his temple. Walking back and forth. Picture this scene, if you will. God walking with his gardeners. Walking along with his gardeners. Them showing him what they've done that day proud of a bed they've dug, showing him a, a new plant that they've found that they've never seen before, pointing out to God to put his nose into a flower that, who's, which has a fragrance that they've never experienced yet. And the human giving names to the animals. We have that there in chapter 3. And, and God laughing at, at words like kangaroo I-I, a possum, and fluffy-backed tit-babbler. And then the humans listening intently and taking it all on board as God explains why a bird builds a nest just so, and why the moon changes color, and why in the winter a bear sleeps for so many months. This is what God wanted from, uh, for us from the beginning. For us to live in the garden. 
For us, fashioned from dust, the very substance of the garden itself, to live in that garden, to live there as part of it, but with God's breath in our lungs and him walking by our side, our constant companion, and we, to borrow a phrase, his constant gardeners. We, his constant gardeners, faithfully leaning on him, trustingly working and keeping his place, his temple garden of delights. Could our daily work, whatever it might be, be seen like that? Most of the time we don't see work in that way. Not all of us are privileged to to work doing something that we enjoy or love. Often folks in our world see work and truly see it as toil and drudgery. And the Bible acknowledges that that too is a reality for so, so many human beings. In chapter 3, after the fall, one of the curses because of sin is, is what the Bible calls toil. Cursed is the ground because of you, because of your sin. Through painful toil, you will eat from it all the days of your life, God says to the humans, because of what they have done in turning their backs on God. But as with all those curses that we find in Genesis 3 because of the sin of human beings, that is not how God intends life to be. And in God's great project of redemption in Christ, he reverses all those curses. And and this curse specifically, replacing cursing with blessing, toil, with fruitful, life-giving work. We who know the redemption Christ has brought now are able to see and live the blessing of work and not the curse of toil. And we're called to share that blessing with all creation as we seek justice for fellow human beings care for the good earth that God has made. As we observed before, these rich themes that we find throughout Genesis, these patterns of notes from this sonata at the beginning of God's great symphony keep recurring throughout the rest of the Bible. And a couple of weeks ago, we looked briefly at that theme of Sabbath But another rich and recurrent theme is this theme of temple and garden. To explore this theme, I'd like to show you a video from our friends at Bible Project that says it much better than me. If you could go back to the city of Jerusalem during Bible times, the biggest thing you'd see is the temple. This beautiful building was designed by King David and built by King Solomon, and they believed that it was the home of the God of the universe. Wait, I thought God's home was in heaven. 
Well, the whole point of this earthly temple is that it's the place that overlaps with God's heavenly home. The temple is where God lives and rules all creation as king. That's cool, but even Solomon, who built the temple, didn't believe that it could contain the God of the universe, right? Yeah, the building was just a symbol, and it pointed to the fact that all of creation is God's temple. And that's actually what the first page of the Bible, Genesis 1, is all about. Really? It says that creation is God's temple? Well, it doesn't need to say it. The whole story shows it. In Genesis 1, God creates an ordered world out of a dark wasteland by speaking in a series of seven days. Then on the seventh day, God's presence fills creation as he takes up his rest and rule. Similarly, the tabernacle and later the temple were built and dedicated in a series of seven speeches and seven days, after which the priest or king could rest and rule in God's presence. Ah, so all of creation is where God intends to dwell. It's like his temple. Exactly. Now, turn the page to Genesis 2 and we get another portrait of creation. This one focuses in on the land. And in the center of the land is a region called Eden, which in Hebrew means delight. And in the middle of delight, God plants a garden in which God and humanity live together. And that's why the temple was modeled after the garden, filled with imagery of gold and flowers. The menorah symbolized the tree of life. It's the place where God dwells with his people. Oh, got it. And check this out. In the temple, the Israelite priests and Levites were to work and to keep the temple in God's presence. This is exactly the job description given to humanity in the Garden of Eden. So these humans were the first priests. But instead of ruling with God, they wanted to rule on their own terms, and they're exiled from the Garden Temple. And like Adam and Eve, Israel's leaders also wanted to rule on their own terms, and they too were exiled. The temple was destroyed, and this left them wondering, did God give up on Israel? Will God bring about a new creation? Well, the biblical prophets anticipated the day when God would create a new temple with a new priesthood. That's when God's presence would fill all of creation. And when the Israelites returned to the land, they did rebuild the temple. But that temple didn't turn out the way the prophets hoped. In fact, later Israelite prophets said that this temple was hopelessly corrupt. So they're still waiting for the ultimate temple. And here we come to the story of Jesus. He said that through him, God's presence and rule was coming into our world in a new way. And he presented himself as a new kind of priest. But Jesus wasn't a priest, and he didn't work in the temple. Right. Jesus said that God's presence, his rest and rule, was filling the world through his own life, death, and resurrection. Jesus was claiming that he was the true temple, and this new temple would expand out to include all of creation. That's a really big claim. And it got even bigger. After his resurrection, Jesus said that God's presence would come to dwell in and among his followers so that they would become mini temples. Communities of people where God rests and rules. Exactly. This is the Bible's vision of the church, which is described as a temple. Not a building, but people. Yeah, like when Peter says, you all are living stones built up as a temple for God's spirit to dwell. So... At the end of the story, 
Do we ever get a new physical temple? Well, not exactly. What we see is a renewed cosmic temple, just like Genesis 1. And this new creation doesn't need a temple building because through Jesus, all creation is now the place where God rests and rules the world with his people. Two questions that I'd like you to go away and think about. Maybe come back and chat with me about your answers or, or maybe chat amongst yourselves about your answers. They're, these are, are questions that will take you a good long time to answer. I think anyone observing Adam and Eve living and working in the garden couldn't help but see that God was present with them. I think anyone observing Adam and Eve were all couldn't help but see that that God was always conversing with them and they were conversing with God. Couldn't help but see that, that Adam and Eve were working to a plan that seemed out with their own natural ability. So my question to you is what difference does God's presence with you as a follower of Jesus and therefore according to the video as a mini temple what difference does God's presence make to your work whatever that might be and then secondly given what we have learned in Genesis 1 and 2 and in terms of creation care and climate change how does our realization of God's presence and his word both written and spoken make a difference to you and to the organization for which you work or with which you are involved so two very big questions that i'd like you to ponder and pray about and, and chat amongst yourselves about and and maybe share with me your answers we're going to sing to respond to what we have heard with another hymn there is a higher throne Let's sing together. We come before you this morning because you have called us to come. You have created and called us to be priests of creation, to share your blessing out into the universe, and to bring pain and brokenness for you to heal, to repair, and to restore. Lord God, we look forward to that garden city prepared for us at the end of all things, that garden with its pure life-giving stream, with the tree of life growing on both sides, its fruit always in abundance, its leaves there for the healing of every nation. We look forward to that city without a temple, for the whole of creation will once again be your temple and your throne. For you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit will be there in that city. We look forward to that city where there are no more tears and no more death, no secrets and no dark places. For you will be there, the one who wipes away every tear, the God who is life, the God who is life.
who is the light that darkness can never overcome. We look forward, and so we hope, and so we pray for our world now. Lord God, we bring before you a world loved by you, yet ravished by greed and selfishness. We bring before you a human race that is divided and self-destructive. And we bring before you our own hearts, our own hearts that are complicit in all these sins. And we ask for your mercy. Thank you that in Christ our healing has already begun, that in Christ our healing is assured. Help us to trust in that healing. Help us to proclaim it and share it far and wide. And today we remember the horrible anniversary of an event that took place 20 years ago yesterday in New York City. And we remember the terrible events that have taken place all over the world because of the bitterness and hatred that has grown from there. We pause to remember all those moments of horror and we pray for those left scarred. O oh God of comfort, yesterday, today, and forever, let your love and peace prevail. And once again, we bring before you the people of Afghanistan and we cry out to you for peace and justice in that troubled land. We pray for agencies at work both in the country and with refugees throughout the world. Give them wisdom and courage in the face of so much need. We pray that the money that we will raise today may bringing your healing and restoration to that land and its people. And we pray for people closer to home whose peace continues to be disturbed by this pandemic. Oh, Lord God, give us all patience. Patience with you, with ourselves, and with one another. And give us fortitude as we continue on this unknown road. We pray for those who struggle with health issues today. We remember several folks amongst us suffering from cancer. And we lift up to young Samuel who is recovering from COVID. In the midst of adversity, help these precious ones find in you an ever-present help and an eternal comfort. And finally, Lord, we pray for ourselves. Lord, keep us ever aware of our sacred duty before your throne to pray and to work that your kingdom will come here in our midst just as it will in that garden city. But we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.